This is Set Aside Some Time, an MSPN podcast, and it's brought to you by the National MSP Network, or MSPN for short. And now, on to the episode. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Anna Block, and on behalf of the National MSP Network, it is my pleasure to welcome you to today's 2022 Annual Conference Highlights Sharing their annual conference experiences with you today are Christy Allison, MSA Paraprofessional Team Leader at Nyan Bambrick, Kinsey and Lowry, Brian Cowan, Vice President of Services at Verisk Analytics, Mark Hepperling, Vice President of Settlement Consulting at Impacts, Rachel Maldonado, Partner at Gordon Reese, Jennifer Shemansky, Vice President of Implementation and Strategy at Impacts, and finally, Dina Ramsey, Director of Operations at LifePlan MD, who'll be kicking us off today. Welcome, Dina. The floor is yours. Thank you, Anna. So first off, uh, we'll go over the initial conference kickoff and our first session after you see the big disclaimer there that I know everyone just read really quick. So we started off with what's up their sleeve, the future of liability MSAs. This session was brought to us by Bill Delaney and Robert Finley. We were kicked off initially with an awesome solo performance that we will not repeat during this webinar, but you have to tune in to listen to yourself. So that is worth listening to. And after that, uh, we reviewed the initial Stall Cup memo from May of 2011, who quickly kind of kicked off the whole LMSA world and thought patterns. We then went into the differences between a work comp MSA versus a liability MSA or an LMSA. As you all know, with the work comp MSA, we have a number of years of statutes, regulations, reference guides, information out there that gives us pretty solid, pretty direct uh, rules and guidance for that work comp MSA. So they're pretty predictable overall. Whereas with the LMSAs, not quite there yet. So in this session, we talked about that and it was also mentioned sort of a wish list, sort of, um, what would be good? What would we like to see? So while the LMSAs remain a mystery, it's still anticipated that there will be some sort of future medical needs. Other things like apportionment was discussed. And there's still a variety of ways to protect Medicare's interests. So that being the main point, but we still don't quite have the clarity and the enforceability that we do with the work comp MSAs. There are LMSAs out there already being funded, so uh, they are in the works. Mr. Delaney actually discussed some things he would like to see as far as regulations, things such as, okay, plaintiff, you filed this liability claim, so we kind of expect you and are requiring you to seek damages for those future medicals from whoever it may be who caused the incident, which leads us into apportionment. And then finally, the big question was, what will CMS do? You'll have to tune in to find out. 
there is a guess from Mr. Finley about when we may actually see something. So definitely tune in to what's up their sleeve, the future of LMSA. Okay, our next session, breaking down risk for civil monetary penalties. This one was brought to us by Susan Montoya and Christina White. They went into some of the background with Section 111, the different rules and requirements that make up Section 111 and reporting. We were provided with some great informative explanations on civil monetary penalties and even went into the specific definitions of what makes up and what is a responsible reporting entity or RRE. Or, or After that, some methods for how to protect your business from civil monetary penalties were discussed and some pointers for best practices were provided. Our section, our session was then closed out with specific examples of some of those best practices. So if you are looking for some tips for how to uh, cut down those risks for the monetary penalties, tune into this session and pick up some pointers there. Our next session, the conditional payment processes and procedures with CRC. For this presentation, we, were, we had an entire panel of experts. You see them listed here, Ted Doyle, Nicole Griffin, Nancy Harfel, Peggy Hort, and Millie Ojeda. Nicole and Millie joined us virtually and were able to provide a lot of details and answer some questions from our audience at the end. The first uh, best practices for pre-demand activities were explained. And again, tips were provided for the best practices and ways to adhere to that. Following that, we talked about post-demand activities. And within that session, it included the CRC escalation path. And we were even provided with more information about workloads and how that functions. Finally, in this session, if you are looking for a really good conclusive list of uh, CRC contact information, you need to tune into this session because the direct contact information was provided. And this again, as with the others, was followed by some questions and answers from the audience. Finally, the morning wrapped up with BCRC bankroll. And you see here our live panel of members who contributed to this discussion. Here we kicked off with information about the COBC contractors and some of their specific responsibilities. We were provided with specific definitions on the differences between a beneficiary debtor and an insurer debtor. After that, a variety of different reporting mechanisms were discussed. Ways to navigate the call center. All of us are familiar with this. Most of us know the number by heart, but it was pointed out that some of the prompts have been updated and may have changed. 
So tune into this session to make sure you understand and know uh, which prompts will get you to the right place. We were also talked provided about um, something they recently added called a virtual hold. So this is a fairly new option, but one that would be worthwhile. Some of the benefits of BCRC were discussed, things about greater efficiency, timeliness of claims being processed, as well as the reduction in cost. They also provided us with different options for ways that Medicare debts can be paid. And one option uh, is an online option, and they also have an ACH electronic option, in addition to the usual mail-in checks. And Finally, we were closed out with this session with their Go Green campaign, which is to um, try and go paperless, reducing our carbon footprint. So BCRC um, wrapped it up, a lot of information. Be sure to tune in to get your answers for BCRC bankroll. Thank you. Perfect. So now I'm going to take it away um, with uh, the next um, segment for squaring up global settlements, mass torts, and Medicare liens. Um, that was brought to us by Deborah Forsyth and Barry Miyagi. And wow, what a meaty presentation. And I this is one that I learned so much on and I took so many notes and I'm like, how do I, how do you summarize this? <laughs> um, a lot of, um, you know, a lot of the session focused on um, the AMP or the AMP program, <laughs> uh, which has to do with asbestos cases, and they really broke it down to where someone like me who had no background in this, I was able to fully understand where they were coming from, and you know, understanding that they had different reimbursement tiers for asbestos claims, depending on uh, the dates, um, because before a certain date, they were, or after a certain date, they became a little bit more pricier due to um, different medical things such as, um, oh, what was it? Um, hospice, which apparently, you know, when people first, you know, would come up with asbestos, hospice wasn't you know, really something that they wanted to push on or uh, go through with it. Um, then I, and so it was just fascinating learning the history about that and the fact that, you know, they kept bringing up, you know, the redeterminations with other primary payers um, and other Medicare entities. Um, and then just also bringing up policy, um, they had, you know, pre and post 80 CMS policy that they talked about the history on that dates back, you know, to 1980 and how we're still using that today. Um, and of course, and they also touched upon section 111 reporting and there was some really great discussion about um, RREs and not reporting versus, you know, on the legal aspects and the defense aspect, it's like, whoa, you're telling us we shouldn't report and um, just kind of debating about whether or not we should try, you know, try to push for some changes with that just to make it simpler. Um, and of course there was a lot more uh, like acronyms in there. They talked about global lien resolution, GLR, private lien resolution programs, the PLRP. So there was, 
like I said, there, there was a lot to um, untangle from that. And it, it you know, don't be intimidated. <laughs> so um, for the next session, uh, the best practices for, we're back to the legal MSAs. Uh, so the best practices in the interim uh, was brought to us by Jennifer Mislanovich and Melissa Zwilling. And that was, you know, it covered a lot of what was brought in the earlier session with the LMSAs. Um, and kind of just the big thing is there's there's really no rules. It's kind of the wild, wild west right now. Um, and kind of broke it down where workers' compensation um, has these laws and mandates versus, you know, with LMSA, it's kind of like, it is different. There's nothing that's really laid out there. Um, we talked about the responsibility to pay future medical is different in liability than in workers' comp. And you just, my, my takeaway from that with LMSA is, is you really need to just come to a settlement agreement with, you know, with all the parties and make sure you're all on the same page and you're just kind of looking out for the bigger, um, the bigger picture. And like uh, Dana said earlier, I mean, LMSAs are out there and, you know, we're just kind of waiting to see where, where they go and where, you know, what happens. But, you know, they talked about when you should consider LMSAs because not every case will need one. And that, um, you know, liability cases, they're not black and white. You have to, you know, put, you know, unfortunately, <laughs> you have to put a lot more thought and energy and effort into them. And then uh, then we talked, or then they, they talked about the life care plan uh, versus an LMSA and understanding that a life care plan may include uh, items in there that are not Medicare eligible, um, which is just something to kind of take into consideration. Um, and it was, you know, definitely something that if you're starting to see more and more, they they really did a good job of uh, succinctly, like, you know, telling the history and kind of bringing it all together. And then finally, um, the settlement strategies and professional administration um, had a panel of with Brian Cohen, who's on on the panel today, <laughs> Steve Shaw, Jody Taylor, and Jennifer. Uh, Wironi. And this one, I think it was right before happy hour, or maybe it was the last one, but I really appreciated just kind of bringing a lot of what we've already learned together um, and then just laying it out there. The big one that my big takeaway was understanding cultural differences and best approaches with beneficiaries. Um, working in the legal field, sometimes we take for granted you know, our knowledge and something that we do every day is something that, you know, the, a lot of these beneficiaries and injured workers have never had to deal with. So, I mean, they, they talked about kind of some, you know, best practices is, uh, you know, when drafting, you know, contract languages and settlement contracts to draft it in both like, like in English and whatever their native languages, have an interpreter at the court, and then just understanding, you know, kind of taking a step back and understanding where, um, you know, this beneficiary may be coming from. You know, they might, you know, they might have a business degree or they might not have, you know, graduated high school. Um, and so just being able to translate the different um, 
settlement agreements and kind of just breaking it down into non-lawyer terms. And that's something that I know has helped, you know, me and my, even in my day-to-day job here. And then another thing is just to be as specific as you can with um, settlement language. You don't want to be, you know, vague and then have to come back, um, you know, in three years and be like, well, I meant this. Like kind of one of the things that this isn't poetry. This isn't art or music that's up for an interpretation. It's they're legal documents and they should be, you know, pretty black and white. Um, so I really appreciated that as well. Um, they also uh, proposed, um, they had some sample settlement languages given um, and they had some outlines on who pays medical expenses and then, you know, kind of outlined the, you know, best practice for uh, conditional payments. Um, and, you know, how to, once you reach settlement, you know, being able to, uh, how you'd finalize those. And and then kind of the, my biggest takeaway was also just uh, regarding once you have an approved MSA, is that no one, no one wants to administer it, just have the professionals take care of it and have the professional administration, you know, in your back pocket to help save headaches down the line. I'll take it from here. Um, so the first one I'm going to speak about is the deep dive, and this is the, the breakout sessions. Um, the deep dive into surgical pricing. Uh, Dina actually presented on this one along with Liz Robinson. And um, I thought this was super helpful because I know a lot of us, um, surgical pricing can be really tricky. So kind of the outlying of, of what's included in that surgery pricing, um, all of the issues that are faced when we, we do that pricing, um, I thought that was really helpful. So the first thing that was discussed was the cost of the surgery and what it comes from. Uh, obviously, it comes from three fees, and that's the professional fees, the anesthesia fees, and the facility fees. Um, the biggest difference in, in between the professional and the facility fees, which I, I thought was nice of a breakdown because we all understand what the anesthesia fee is. We kind of all intuitively know what that is, but the professional fee is for the surgeon him or herself, um, the actual fee for that provider to do the surgery, and then the facility fee is for the fee that the hospital is charging for that surgery to be done in that facility. So that was helpful. Um, they, they did discuss that some of these costs, specifically the professional costs, could vary from state to state. Um, some of them are Medicare-based, some of them are state-based, which again, super helpful for all of us that are trying to uh, be as accurate as possible in pricing surgeries when preparing MSAs because um, the last thing any of us want is to do an MSA and price the surgery and then it come back a lot higher because maybe it was mispriced. So I thought that was super helpful. Um, interestingly enough, uh, John Jenkins did kind of pop in and, and did give us some insight from CMS. And he did state that anesthesia fees have traditionally been underpriced, which I thought was very interesting because, again, I'm sure all of us have lived through that experience where we thought well, we accurately priced the surgery and then it comes back, you know, hopefully not too high, but much higher or higher than what we originally um, anticipated. And he did caution that most people submitting MSAs were underpricing that fee. So that's something to keep in mind going forward, something to think about when you're preparing your MSAs. Next, the no dice zero MSAs. I was personally very excited about this one because 
um, the last year or so has been very interesting in regards to MSAs and zero MSAs in general. So this was presented by Amy Bilton, uh, Michael Flower, and Jennifer Katz. Um, they clarified the different types of zero MSAs. So they kind of went over the fact that there are two traditional types of zero MSAs. There's the legal denied MSA that's a zero, which is based upon the fact that the claim had been denied uh, from, from onset, no indemnity, no uh, medical had been paid. It was a true denied claim. And then there was a zero based on resolution of the condition or um, a provider statement saying that no future treatment is needed. So there were two different zeros that were discussed. Um, I thought they did a really excellent job in discussing the needed documentation for the zero approved MSAs. Again, I, a lot of us have had kind of a roller coaster relationship with the zero MSAs over the past 12 months. And so um, I liked hearing about what everybody's insights were and kind of their own experiences in that they kind of discussed that the more the better essentially with the denied claim and I think a lot of us already knew that but it was it was good for them to lay out the fact that the needed documentation was the the records the indemnity payment history showing a zero if it is a true denied legal claim um, expense payment history prescription payment history medical payment history uh, the first report of injury um, kind of everything that was inclusive of what CMS has really been asking for for these claims. Um, another big one was the settlement documentation or the draft of the settlement documentation. And they really went into the best practices and what settlement language should state for those zero denied MSAs, because again, that is a tricky issue in that you have to be very careful in what you're including in your settlement language for zero legal denied MSAs, because if not, it could cost you the zero. It could result in a counter, and obviously that's what we're all trying to avoid in those specific cases. So um, I thought they did a really great case studies as well. Um, specifically, they kind of went through a bunch of different um, examples of what was a successful zero, that was submitted to CMS and it was successfully approved. And then there were some that were um, submitted and then not approved. I thought it was very interesting. One of the case studies that they did was a COVID case actually. And what they had done is it was a zero denied. Um, I don't believe anything was paid for. And they submitted it based upon the fact that it was a denied legal claim. But CMS actually came back and stated um, due to a state statute, in that particular jurisdiction, um, there was a presumption of of basically acceptance for these COVID claims because it was a um, essential worker, and so they were they were countered due to this COVID statute. So it's something to look to be aware of going forward because I, I know I personally, I'm sure most of the listeners have seen a lot of these COVID cases popping up. The ones that haven't resolved kind of at the beginning of COVID are kind of now coming to that resolution. And so these are becoming a little bit more common. And so it's something to be mindful of that if you're attempting to go for a zero, you, you really need to know that state law as well. So you have to make sure there isn't a presumption there. You need to understand that um, if there is, you know, you have to have that tough conversation with your client or, you know, have that knowledge that you may not get the zero you want. Um, again, John Jenkins popped his head in. Um, he, he also kind of gave us some of his insight as well. Uh, he 
did discuss some interesting things about the zero in, in regards to reporting. Uh, he did note that if a zero denied claim was reported via Section 111, even if an error, uh, technically that would move to zero. However, um, somebody did ask if CMS currently was reviewing the Section 111 codes that were reported and reviewing the MSAs, and he did respond no. And if I'm not mistaken, in February of 2022, CMS did state that if they did begin to review the ICD-10 codes um, in regards to Section 111 reporting with the MSAs, they would give us a heads up first. So they would give us an announcement. So not to be an alarmist, it's not happening yet, but we don't know if it could happen. Um, it was a very interesting conversation. If you guys haven't listened to it, I would strongly suggest you go back and listen to that session because um, there was a lot of interesting comments and a lot of interesting reactions. So if, if nothing else, take, take a listen. Uh, it was very helpful. Um, and then finally, um, the practical application of evidence-based medicine. This was presented by Nala Rizkala and Jennifer Shemansky. Um, so this was another great session. Um, Nala was so knowledgeable about um, her background and the basis of evidence-based medicine. She really went into um, what, how they do evidence-based medicine, you know, the whole process, why it is in place, um, the scientific support for it. He also explained the issues with chronic use of several different kinds of prescription medications, which I thought was really interesting. We all know the dangers of opioids, obviously, but there was a, a bunch of different classes of medications that she did discuss, even ibuprofen, that could be extremely harmful if long-term uh, prescribed. And so she was kind of discussing that in that how using evidence-based medicine, a lot of these medications would be simply taken out and replaced and or other therapies would be introduced in their, in their stead. Um, and she really kind of went into how evidence-based medicine is more of a holistic kind of approach to the MSA, if you will, versus kind of a, a strict CMS perspective, obviously. And we all know that, but it was just interesting to hear how it is for the betterment of the claimant a lot of times when you're doing evidence-based medicine, as in they are taking into account the, the medical interplay between treatments and the medications. Um, again, John Jenkins came in, uh, gave us some insight as well. Uh, he was on the move that day, I guess. He really was bouncing from session to session. Uh, but he interestingly had a conversation about opioids and, and everybody has had that same argument um, that opioids are known to be harmful long-term. However, we still have to include them over the lifetime per CMS's requirements in its MSA. And, and Mr. Jenkins did note that CMS's stance is that, you know, the doctor knows best. So if they're prescribing and they continue to prescribe, then it's anticipated that prescription will be over lifetime and, and we have to adhere to that. So it was just, and an, again, the, the discussion back and forth was very interesting and lively. Um, again, I would strongly suggest you listen to it because it's interesting to hear the perspectives of both sides. And I thought um, some great points were made. So if you don't have, um, or if you have a few minutes and you would like to listen to this, I would strongly suggest it. Cause again, it was, it was helpful to hear some of the uh, rationale from CMS behind the kind of 
unincorporation of evidence-based medicine, more or less. <clears throat> this is me. So thank you. Um, so I would like to just take a second. Um, many of you know, I am the co-chair of the webinar committee for MSPN along with Sean Dean. And so on behalf of Sean, I just want to thank Dina and Christy and Rachel and Brian and Mark for doing this today. We really appreciate it. As, uh, as they were telling me before we got started, um, many of them um, didn't really realize the scope of what they had agreed to um, before they actually agreed to it. And so a lot of them did spend a lot of time this week going back over sessions to make sure that they recaptured everything for you. Um, so I thank them for that and for joining us today. Um, I also kind of along those same lines, just wanted to um, just point out to everybody, as you've seen so far, as we've gone over what we've gone over so far, especially in kind of these afternoon breakout sessions, Christy handled one that was more geared towards settlement. Um, Rachel handled one that was more geared towards the actual allocation piece. The one I'm gonna talk about, uh, the three that I'm gonna talk about today were really more geared towards kind of the one-on-one piece. So just a, just a reminder to everybody that um, Amy and Michelle, who handled the annual, the bulk of the annual convention, spend a lot of time setting up all of these sessions to do exactly that, to get the full breadth and depth and to make sure that everybody is included. So we got the liability side on. We try and get, you know, the advantage plans. We try and get um, people on the plaintiff and claimant sides. Um, what I'm going to go through now is, is really on the kind of 101 piece, right? So you don't have to have been doing this for 15 years in, you know, in order to go over that. So with that said, um, the first section of uh, the kind of 101 piece was the rules of the game. And it was really um, kind of the, the basis of what we all do, right? Uh, although um, <clears throat> Steve Miller, uh, who's the president, current president of MSPN, introduced the section and I, it did go out in some of the initial um, marketing as a 4.3 discussion. They kind of morphed that because the 4.3 was kind of sprinkled throughout the rest of uh, the rest of the presentation. So what Rasafumagali and Kate Reardon did was they really sat down and did kind of the history, kind of, you know, the basis for why we do what we do. So they started out with a discussion of Medicare itself and then really kind of got us up through, you know, what was called Medicare plus choice which really became the Part C plans. And then looping in in 2003 is where we kind of got the, um, the drugs that started being impactful in our MSAs. So then um, Kate really transitioned that over to just a, a general overview of this whole Medicare secondary payer and really, you know, its primary purpose, which is, you know, to coordinate those benefits and to not pay um, if they shouldn't be paying, but if they do then pay, go through the recovery process. So they then transitioned to the actual MSP statute itself, the 1980 statute, and really talked about a bunch of the, you know, the key provisions of the statute. You know, one of the things that, that Kate had really pointed out was one of the regulations, 411.24, that really talks about where we find this reference to you know, any party to the settlement is really responsible for this. And so it's to everybody's benefit that they be keyed in and knowledgeable about the MSP. And so then she really continued kind of along that timeline. She talked about the 2007 VS Chip Extension Act, which gave us the Section 111 reporting, the 2013 SMART Act, which gave us, you know, a, a bit more depth on that conditional payment um, recovery and the processes there. And then, of course, the latest, the 2020 Paid Act, 
which really, um, you know, changed that query process and gave us so much more information and has been quite impactful since it, it uh, came into being and um, or went active, I guess, in, in late 2021. So then um, Rasa took over and really um, started a discussion of kind of the memos, you know, once the once the statute uh, really kind of became a, impactful, people were doing MSAs, she talked about the memo. And of course, she started with um, the place all of us would start, which is the infamous 2001 Patel memo. So really kind of her, her point of that was, that really is what set out the blueprint for, for much of how that work comp review program goes. One of the interesting things that I think that Rasa pointed out is, you know, she was around when this kind of went into place. And she said, you know, um, this really was a time where they had published this and they released it and became a, came a new awareness of what was going on in the MSP. And then she kind of laughed and said, really, what it did was it, it made a lot of people uneasy. Um, they, they were concerned with how they were going to manage to do all of this that was, you know, outlined in the memo. And then Kate kind of jumped in and, and um, she said, you know, at the time, we thought that there was, you know, proposed rule. We knew that there were proposed rules sitting out potentially that we're going to cover, as as um, they mentioned beforehand, liability or something new that we were waiting for. And so Kate just posited, you know, she kind of wondered if whatever that was, um, was that going to basically use kind of that Patel as a as a base for that and kind of grow off of there or that whatever we were going to end up getting, was that going to be something brand new and, and in a different direction? And what we know now is as of this week that was pulled back. So we're kind of, as, as everybody else has indicated, we're still, especially in the liability area, we're still kind of in that, that wild, wild rest, right? Where there isn't a lot that's, that's kind of there. So from there, Rasa went on and talked about, you know, the 2000, there's a couple of memos in 2003, one that talked about, you know, this concept of reasonable expectation, and a hearing on the merits and you know, cases involving third-party liability. There's a bunch of subsequent memos. You know, the threshold was originally 10,000 for the review, went up to uh, 25,000 in 2006. Um, there was a 2009 memo that discussed the drug pricing and that of course really the way that that was impactful just raised the amount of the MSAs kind of significantly. So that was kind of an impact. Um, a 2010 one on rated ages, um, a 2011 memo, which um, really kind of discussed, um, you know, the actual use of the MSP and how you submit to them, but really it's most often cited as the fact that including in that language was a discussion of how that submission was a voluntary um, process. So then Rasa kind of naturally went into, we had these memos, but in 2013, CMS started putting out this reference guide, right? And so we transitioned to the reference guide. CMS now says, hey, listen, it's all in the reference guide. We have the current version that's sitting out there, but you should stop referring to all of these kind of previous memos. And so then Kate jumped back in and she actually showed us kind of functionally where to go get that reference guide, where the, the MSP section is out on CMS's website. And, um, you know, mentioned, which I agree with, is go out there and sign up for the alerts, right? If something is going on, you want to know what it is, so go out there and, and sign up the, for the alerts for that. Okay, Anna. So then the second kind of 101 session really followed that through to the next thing, which is you have these MSAs, right? And how do you do this when you're going to submit to CMS? And so Kim Wiswell did this presentation. And the thing I have to tell you guys is she did a fabulous job 
in making sure that she that she stayed with the theme of the conference. So all of her uh, all of her slides and everything were really very much in the theme. So it was kind of it was kind of fun to go through and and listen to her talk. She was very active about it. So Kim actually started really before she started talking about the actual submission piece. She kind of backed up and said, well, really, the first thing you need to talk about is, are you ready to actually submit to begin with? So she really walked through a discussion of what you should be looking at and thinking about before you even start submitting. You know, are you hitting the thresholds for the dollars and the beneficiary status? You know, are you actually near settlement? Because what you don't want to do is get MSAs and continually getting updated MSAs, and that gets, you know, fairly expensive. And, you know, is the claimant ready to settle? You know, you start talking about MMI or um, permanent stationary in California. Is, is this the right time to be doing it? And also then looking at the treatment, does that indicate? Are there things that you should be clearing up before you actually get ready to submit? So she talked about that and then she really kind of flipped it and talked about the uh, from the other direction is, this is how you kind of know when you're not ready to submit and kind of reiterated those pieces. So then really, um, you know, Kim was honest. She said, listen, you're not going to learn how to submit something to CMS today from a one hour conversation. But really what her aim was, was just to kind of go through, make sure everybody knows what all needs to be included. And then talk about like kind of F of her years of kind of doing this. What are the things that you most should be paying attention to? What does she often see that gets tripped up? And so she really just went through the pieces. For instance, um, I thought this was um, an interesting statement. When she talked about that first cover letter, she really said she's kind of changed her thought on that in the last few years, and that she really believes that that is probably one of the most important pieces when you're submitting to CMS, because she said, you know, if it does what it's supposed to do, it makes the entire rest of the process so much easier. So she indicated, you know, there's no required format, but you should make it easy to follow and include that information in there. So really, as far as the release, she talked about there's required language for that. Um, one of the things she said is oftentimes, They'll get a signature that does not match the name on the piece. So walking through and making sure that everything matches up is important. Rated ages also, you know, there's um, uh, specific things that need to be for that. It's got to be on letterhead. You have to include language. Remember, if you have multiples, it's a median, not an average. So if you don't get this right, CMS will go price at the full life expectancy. That can be very impactful dollar-wise for that. So she walked through the treat, um, all of the treatment plan piece, talked about, you know, making sure you're focusing on the correct coding, making sure you're getting frequencies right. She did point out DME, that's very Im important to make sure you have invoices if you're doing that. Because if you get something like a prosthetic or a wheelchair, just so hard to find uh, to make sure that you get that pricing right. She also talked about watching out for the pharmacy for those very same things, the coding and the frequency. Um, for settlement information, very important that you let CMS know what that is, get that breakdown between the past and the future expenses. Administration, you need to tell them um, if you're going to be doing professional administration, and then you need to include that, administers, uh, that administration company's information and the agreement. And then the payment histories, not only do they need to be complete, with the indemnity, the expense, and the medical. But if you have multiple claims, she said, you often get tripped up with, you need to have those for all of those pieces. And then really she mentioned, you know, this supplemental information um, piece is really the place where you should be going to explain 
what you don't feel you can explain in other places, right? This is your this is your place to clarify what you're meaning and what you were trying to do. And so the example that she gave of that, of course, is if you have some type of treatment that has been adjusted because there's a state law argument there, you need to explain that there, but you also need to make sure that you include all of the information on that. The other thing I'll say about this is there was a great conversation um, post um, Kim's presentation, a lot of questions and answers. And so, as I said before, this is a really good opportunity. We all think, again, conferences, you know, it's for all these people that have been in the industry for years, but this is a good place for people to come and learn a lot about our industry in a, in a very short period of time. And so the last one that I had was actually um, two of a kind. It was a, a conditional payment and section 111 discussion. Um, and Kira Koba and Amber Warman did this. And really where they were trying to focus on is because we had other sections on 111 and conditional payments, they really were, were doing kind of the, again, more of the 101 version where they defined the section 111 reporting. And then they talked about how that interplay happens with um, the conditional payments. So um, they went into a couple of, um, couple of kind of topics that weren't necessarily on um, their PowerPoint, but I, I thought they were a little interesting. She, they actually referenced talking globally about Section 111, a wish that we all had a, a little bit more of a view of the Section 111 piece. Meaning, wouldn't it be nice, for instance, if defense attorneys had more of an idea of what was happening on the reporting piece when they're wrapping up the settlement? And so they kind of posited possibilities, like maybe through the portal, we could add some additional information and, and it would uh, uh, more transparency across the board, leading to better settlement um, outcomes. The other thing that Amber brought up that I thought was very um, interesting is, wouldn't it be nice if we had the ability to um, connect the ORM piece with the actual body parts, right? This body part, that body part, here's the ORM status, here's the ORM status. So that was kind of interesting. And that led them into a conversation of these key data elements that impacted the risk. So they talked about how, you know, if you can kind of nail down the coding and the ORM pieces and the TPOC especially, if you think you can get a handle on that as you're doing your reporting, that is really going to help you immensely dealing through that conditional payment process. And then as we talked about also with um, those civil monetary penalties that are coming. Um, they also talked about data limitations, you know, dealing with things like denied body parts, how you deal with potential terminations in um, lifetime medical states. Then they transitioned into the civil monetary penalties and those were handled in other sessions also, but really some suggestions on how you can prepare internally for that. Um, and then really just transition in kind of the meat of the piece, which is, okay, we've talked about this, the section 111 reporting. Now they transitioned it over to how does that affect those conditional payments? So spent a lot of time talking about, you know, the paid act, we're getting more information, making sure you're getting all the diagnosis codes right. And so that's following through on the claim, how that can be very impactful. And then Kira kind of finished it up with a discussion on that appeals process, right? Uh, specifically the A and B appeals process, there's five levels. She really kind of commented, most of those cases top out 
at um, the third level. And she also kind of mentioned, and I know we're, we're seeing this internally too, that that has gotten a lot, a lot quicker. It was taken two and three years to do that. That seems to be down significantly, still about a year, but something um, that's that's doing a little bit better in the process wise. So that was the um, that was the sessions on kind of the 101 piece. And so that was the end of Wednesday. And Brian, I think you're going to do Thursday morning for us. Yeah, so thank you. Thursday morning was dense. I'm just going to say it like those sessions were, were deep and meaty. And if you're a Medicare dork, like I know I am, I know a lot of the people on this, this call are, it was glorious. Like it was a wonderful morning. And I'm sorry, people hear me say Medicare compliance glorious, but hey, come on, if you're in this call, I hope you enjoy it. Um, the first session, David Bargander, uh, Brian Bargander and David Farber on Paid Act and Medicare Advantage Plan, again, there's a ton of information, quite frankly, more than I could sit here and do full justice to in the time that, that we have. However, they provided a, a wonderful overview of the Paid Act and the history around it. And then they walked through some of the basic data points. If you aren't familiar with that, I really encourage you to watch that portion of the presentation, get the data points that were included. Quite frankly, some of the stuff that we'd hope to be included in Paid Act that wasn't. I, I did think just for the purposes of, of sort of covering things quickly here, for everybody, there were a few key takeaways from the session. And again, I really encourage you all to go back and watch this one. There was a ton of material um, covered in it. But one of the questions a lot of us have had is, as we try to reach out to obtain these Medicare Advantage plan liens, where do we go? The address that was provided, the COB address that's provided in the Act data feed, is that really the correct address? And there was this memo from um, April of this year saying, they're supposed to be able to use that address for there. So, really good information to know, particularly if you're trying to get that information, that you can go to that address that is provided through the data feed. So there, there is a way to go there. Um, some tips about using the MBI and exactly what to include in those correspondence. Again, I think a lot of us is we're, you know, we're sort of, you know, perfectly happy to get the data, but now how do we actually use it to effectuate and impact claims to be able to go back and, and understand what to best work with the Medicare Advantage plans, the Part B plans, to get resolution, because that's the goal with it all. So there was a lot of good information provided there. Also some questions around, hey, you know, if we did an MSA on this, what's provided to the Medicare Advantage plans, what's not provided, what should we be doing as either the carrier or a vendor over to the Medicare Advantage plans, the Part D plans, when we exhaust the MSA, all those kinds of things. And so, again, a lot of good points that were covered there. I think it's really um, important and a really good idea to spend some time, go through this, that session, take some notes off of it. I think I took about five pictures of the slides of just all the different data points and everything else. So again, a good session to go back and watch there. Um, we led in from that into, I don't know, this is like the juicy things if you're a data dork and, and I'm a self-professed dork in a lot of things in life. Um, there's this really cool amount of research. And I think a lot of us in the industry have been wondering like, how often do MSAs exhaust? Like how much do you actually recover on conditional payments? How often? A lot of us have our own insight into our own claims that we handle, but we don't really have full insight into the bigger picture there. So there've been some historical projects. It was interesting to kind of hear uh, Michelle, uh, Dan and Jason walk through what's been done before. Like what research has even been attempted on this? Who's done what? Um, and, and then they went into a project that is now going on, right? The part of the whole reason that we do the MSPN is to come together as an industry to help kind of make things work better. So it's really cool to hear about the project that's going on right now. They're looking at data for MSAs, conditional payments, section 11. They're working with Medicare. Hey, how can we get some of this data 
from Medicare. It's not always easy. Obviously, it's a federal agency. Um, they've got a lot of rules and regulations, rightfully so, about data that they can and cannot provide. So there was some really cool information around that. Um, and then information, hey, how can we help contributing data, um, suggesting data points? What, what would you like to see? What would we as an industry find is important? I think Michelle, Dan, and Jason have some really great ideas there, but they were really open in saying, look, come to us, tell us what you all think. What would what be helpful for us as a larger industry? Obviously, you know, people sit in different chairs, have different experiences. So uh, that one was really good for that. I do encourage people, if you do have an interest there, reach out to them. It's a really cool project going on. Um, the next one um, we, was WCRC one. So this jumps in off a little bit of some of the prior stuff that we've talked about, but it was Adriana Hawley and, and John Jenkins. And this was, again, if you are a practitioner here, do yourself a favor, take the time, really watch this session. Obviously, you know, what the WCRC does was a nice overview there. But then to get the insight in terms of, particularly from, from uh, Mr. Jenkins, in terms of what the mistakes they see are, what's happening on the files they see, because we only sort of see our own little subset, right? You know, the consent forms, what's happening there, rated ages, the fact that if you don't send the right rate age, they're just gonna ignore it. They're not gonna develop for it. Things like that that are really clutch as practitioners to know. I, again, really good to go through medical records, sorting them. Don't highlight them. I thought that was a really interesting um, thing they brought up. Is don't highlight the medical records. It, it's, you know, sort of throws things off. Um, some tips for prompt review in terms of sending the state statutes. If you're referencing a state statute in your argument, send it along. Settlement documents, same thing. Put the records in the right order. I know a lot of us do it for our own nurses and whatnot to work on them, but a really good practice there. They also walk through some other best practices around submission to make sure that they get these um, resolved and back out. Um, and then I will go to the last one that I cover here really quickly, um, and that's the submit and non-submit programs. And, and Heather and, and Bridget did, did a great job of sort of talking about, hey, what are the requirements there? And there's, you know, Folks have some misinformation around it, so they did a nice job of sort of covering when you have to submit, when you don't have to submit, how all that works, what CMS's position is around that. Um, they they didn't then talk through the differences between an actual allocation, submit, how, I mean, how it's actually allocated. So some of the, the technical nuances of, you know, you might taper here, you might do this. If it's a submit, you wouldn't do that. Or if it's a non-submit, you would if it's a submit, things like that. Um, they talked about other parties' views on non-submission. You know, how are the courts viewing this? How are different folks out there viewing it? Um, and then, you know, really what to be careful about? What are people doing on indemnification? Um, you know, how does this whole memo that came out or the, sorry, the updated reference guide that came out in January and, and what does that mean? And then the change in March and then the subsequent changes to that wording and how is that being viewed? You know, how are defense attorneys and, and claimants attorneys looking at that, claimants attorneys, um, you know, how they, how they come across, interact at that, what that's forcing behavior. So again, I think it had some really good insights in terms of, you know, best practices around that. So with that, I will hand it off to Mark. All right. Um, I don't have too much time, so I'll try to rapid fire get through these. Um, the, there was a case law update at lunch on Thursday done by John Caddy. Um, he talked about these first two claims, with, or first two cases, which are in the 11th circuit, uh, the first one kind of just stands for the fact that section 111 data can be used to get past the demonstrator responsibility requirement, um, but maybe not necessarily get you all the way to a full claim. Um, Tower Hill was about 
whether uh, when you're suing under the private cause of action provision, what statute of limitations applies. The court ultimately determined that it was a four-year statute of limitation and that the claim accrues when the medical bills were paid and became eligible, not when they discovered um, the fact that they weren't paid. So that, that kind of had a four-year difference from when the statute of limitations would have started in this case. Um, so it was, it was really big that it, it starts when, when the medical bills were uh, paid and, and became eligible. Um, I will say that I just saw a recent case where uh, MSPA claims went back to the district court and tried to use the holding in Metro um, in, in Tower Hill. And the court, uh, once again, it was for a motion for reconsideration and the court held that the, the exhibit that they tried to use, even though it might get across the demonstrator responsibility hurdle, um, it doesn't plead facts that uh, allege a specific failure to pay or non-reimbursement. Um, so it didn't really go far enough. Kangaroo versus Locklear, the parties didn't discuss who would be um, paying liens and when the liens would be uh, paid. And so initially there was thought to be a meeting of the minds, but because those specific terms weren't discussed uh, ahead of time, uh, they no, no contract was formed there, the court said. And then the big one in Supreme Court, Gallardo v. Marstiller, um, basically the, the, the past standard from Alborn to get uh, past the anti-lean uh, provision in the Medicaid Act, which just says that you, you can't uh, like really recover, let's say someone's property to, to satisfy uh, amounts that Medicaid paid. But when there's been a, when there's been a, a lawsuit and someone's held responsible, um, the court now said that it doesn't, you can go after both the past expenses and potential future medical expenses, which was a big change. It, the dividing line previously was past medical expenses uh, or medical expenses and no medical expenses. Um, and now, you know, the future ones are implicated. And the, the big takeaway is really that there's going to be less money for settlements for people who are already kind of in need. So maybe not the best result. Um, uh, this, like, like a lot of people said, this one was really dense, a lot of great information if you're going to be doing conditional payment work, and you definitely have to go back and watch it. Annie Davidson and Brian McAllister clearly really knew their stuff. Um, I pulled out kind of my big takeaways. Um, the ORM is done by the CRC, whereas TPOC recovery is done by the BCRC, and kind of the most important reason to pay attention to that is when you settle cases and let's say it's on the insurer to resolve the liens, um, but you're going back through TPOC and, and they're sending all of the correspondence to the beneficiary because it's their responsibility through a contract. Um, but the contract says that the insurer is on it. They need to make sure they have the right authorizations to be able to resolve that because uh, the BCRC is gonna go through the beneficiary. Um, also, sometimes working with the beneficiary is the very best thing to do to kind of address the, the recovery actions and the liens. A lot of times, they said a lot of times the, the beneficiaries are kind of mad that it's happening and, and they're going after you for something you're not, that's not your responsibility. So they are willing to work with it. And they highly, highly recommended engaging with the CMS outreach process um, and taking all of your evidence and, and, common, and really common sense. It seems like, depending on the day and depending on the person, if you have everything there uh, up front, you might be able to get help. So uh, 
with that, that you should be appealing everything. Don't take anything for granted. You might not have lost. There's lots of opportunities uh, to reopen things uh, and appeal the decisions. And they are also bound to time limits themselves. So if, if even if you're not attacking them on something substantive, you might be able to say that they needed to have responded uh, to certain things. And there's really just all sorts of opportunities to work your way through that five level appeal process that we've talked about earlier. Um, and, and the last thing that I just wanted to mention that ALJ level three, it, they said they're very reasonable. Um, and the time you could get a decision from them within a few weeks, or it could be a couple months. Uh, the timing is hard to nail down but typically you're gonna get a fair result at that level. Thanks for going back. Uh, Ethics and MSP by Daniel Anders and Aaron Winnell. They, uh, I, I, I added four of the scenarios here, um, just kind of an example that we went through various examples like this to see what people would do. Um, I thought it was, the funniest thing I thought was at the very end, Daniel Anders was kind of maybe on the more risky side. He, he would have maybe done some of the things that we're on the lower percentage uh, end of, of what people might have done. And he was laughing that maybe he shouldn't be the one doing this if he's <laughs> the one who's uh, least moral, I guess. But I, I would say that he's actually the best one to do it because he's very comfortable in the gray areas um, and, and advising clients and, and not necessarily just defaulting to what the very best, most moral seeming thing is because you have a client you're responsible for also, and you need to work through those issues with them. Uh, we can go to the next slide. Uh, yeah, uh, opportunities and insight with uh, John Kane, Monica Williams, and Amy Bilton was a moderator, but she, I thought she substantially contributed to this. Um, they discussed section 111 reporting. There was a thought that maybe you could add a field uh, in the reporting to show the Medicare allocation amount. Uh, they they discussed the importance of accurate ICD-10 codes and, and having clean, accurate data because on the other end of that, the conditional payment process is unfolding. Um, and so you want them capturing the right injuries. Uh, so always double check your codes, double check your codes in the MSA against what you've reported and make sure you're, you're updating that with your reports uh, accordingly. There was also an interesting discussion on Medicare Advantage plans uh, and the coverage guidelines being more all-encompassing than Part A and Part B. Uh, and obviously those wouldn't go in the MSA, but when you're discussing uh, resolving the Part C liens, you're, you're not gonna automatically think maybe dental or hearing, oh, that's not my problem, that's not Medicare, because they, those might be work-related issues uh, and part of the liens coming from the Part C plans. Um, Steve Miller discussed potential, he, he, he responded to a com, uh, some commentary on what pricing methods to use and he thought WAC pricing, I, I forget what WAC stands for, a wholesale acquisition cost maybe, um, and that was maybe more realistic than AWP. And, you know, I could sit here and attack AWP all the time uh, as being like the only realistic option for, for reports because people are investing money in, in new companies for pricing and there's, more transparency coming on pricing and all, all of that effort. It just seems crazy for all of that effort for us to come right back to AWP all over again. Um, and then again, there's been no rate, we've discussed this in the, there's been no change in the rate of development requests, uh, any increase or kind of due to specific circumstances. I know John Jenkins referenced 
uh, a submission, uh, a very large amount of Georgia files that came through and that those contributed to the development request increases. And then last, uh, this is the best title of the bunch, I thought, Fireside Chat Free Spins. It, I just don't really know what it was referring to at all, but it's great. Um, this was done by Jacqueline Seabod, Steve Forey, John Jenkins, and Steve Miller. The big, the big thing here is there's going to be a new re-review option, which they previewed. The current re-review is really about a mistake that CMS made. The new one is going to be about a mistake that you, the submitter, made and, and opportunities correct that. Uh, so, for instance, you, you messed up something on the rated age. You're going to, and since the rated age is dated prior to the time of submission, you can go back to the original person who did that rated age, get them to fix the mistake. And that will be an, a new option, which you know I'm very excited about. Um, we talked about advanced notification uh, from CMS. We would hope to see this type of advanced notification if they're going to start using the Section 111 data. We just talked about looking at the ICD-10s and, and comparing that to MSAs and ORM yes or no and comparing that to MSAs. And if ORMs yes, then maybe that will make your chance of getting a $0 MSA approved more difficult and issues with that. Um, there's no specific time frame for when CMS might be uh, using the data like that. And they said that they'll, they'll give us notification and I hope they would. And I know giving notification on, on changes that the, from the WCRC and, and CMS is something that we are always hoping for so we can plan accordingly. They mentioned they're spending money on uh, a new machine learning AI product for accurately capturing treatment and claims. And we're gonna look for that in 2023. And they say that though they treat approved and non-approved MSAs as closely as possible. Uh, they again, you know, came right out and said, there's no obligation to send a, a, an MSA or the attestation to CMS, but um, they feel it's in everyone's best interest to do so. Um, and that the review of funds and appropriateness is, is a separate discussion. And I'd like to know where, where and when that discussion is happening because that's an important discussion. All right, thank you everyone for joining us today and we wish you all a wonderful day. Thank you.